Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Joe Allen. Joe served on the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee for Senator Birch Bayh, Democrat from Indiana, securing passage of the Bayh-Dole Act, which fostered R&D partnerships between universities and U.S. industry. The Economist Technology Quarterly called this law possibly the most inspired piece of legislation to be enacted in America over the past half century. After leaving the Senate staff, Joe was executive director of Intellectual Property Owners, Inc., also known as IPO, where he worked to create the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit before going to the U.S. Department of Commerce, where he became the director of the Office of Technology Commercialization. While there, Joe was instrumental in the passage of major laws allowing U.S. industry to perform joint R&D with federal laboratories. Joe's office oversaw executive branch implementation of the Bayh-Dole and Federal Technology Transfer Acts and related presidential policy directives. Joe helped negotiate intellectual property right provisions for major international science and technology agreements. Joe became president of the National Technology Transfer Center established by Congress to promote industry slash federal laboratory R&D partnerships. In 2008, Joe founded Allen & Associates, a consulting firm specializing in technology management slash IP issues. Joe was the lead witness before the South African Parliament on their Bayh-Dole law and consulted with the Republic of Kazakhstan to develop its technology transfer laws. In 2013, Joe co-chaired the White House Lab to Market Summit. The Association of University Technology Managers, also known as Autumn, presented Joe with the Driving Innovation Award for his tireless work and support as a champion for the Bayh-Dole Act during the past 30 years, as well as its Bayh-Dole Award, its highest honor. Joe also writes a monthly column for IP Watchdog on technology management issues and currently leads the Bayh-Dole Coalition, a broad-based organization promoting and protecting that landmark law. And with that extremely impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Joe. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to talking with you this morning. Well, I'm really excited to have you here, Joe, and thank you again for taking part in the podcast. So, Joe, I generally like to start the podcast off by asking my guests about their journey to tech transfer. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up becoming a professional staffer on the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee to former Senator Birch Bayh? Well, I'm happy to. Like most things in life, it was just fortuitous. Um, I guess I was just sort of sitting at the right place at the right time. I actually started working on the Senate Judiciary Committee under Senator John Tunney. Uh, If you ever saw the movie um, The Candidate with Robert Redford and and Dustin Hoffman, that was about John Tunney. Uh, I, I worked for him for two years, and he lost his election in 1976. So I was on his Senate Judiciary Committee staff. 
So for three months, we didn't have a boss. So we just came to work. We had nothing to do. We just sort of sat there. And then one day, the, the committee had reorganized, and Senator Birch Bayh became our new chairman. And there was really a shock when that door opened <laughs> and the new, the new folks came in. And luckily, I was, frankly, such a low-level person. I was basically a research assistant that they kept me on. And uh, I, I first started uh, doing research. I started doing correspondence for the subcommittee. And then uh, one day, I was asked to sit in a meeting with our general counsel when Purdue University wanted to come by and talk about a patent issue. Uh, we had no idea what they wanted to talk about, but uh, that led to actually change the rest of my life. So that's sort of how I stumbled into it. I guess when I started... There really wasn't much of a profession in 1977 of tech transfer. And Joe, I think that's a great segue because um, you alluded to you kind of had this inside perspective on the enactment of the Bayh-Dole Act. And this is really what I want to spend some time talking with you about today, in particular about the events that led to the passage of Bayh-Dole, because the fact that the law even passed itself is an incredible story that I'm not really sure many people are aware of. So... For those of our listeners who are not familiar, Bayh-Dole passed in a lame duck session of Congress. The principal author of the legislation was defeated. Uh, the U.S. Senate was changing hands and then sitting president, who was Jimmy Carter, lost his reelection bid. So, Joe, given all that, can you start off by describing some of the events that led up to the introduction of the bill that ultimately became the Bayh-Dole Act? Sure, I'm happy to. Actually, after what you described, which is accurate, it's, it's actually a miracle that it ever happened. Absolutely. With all the things going against us. But at the, at the time we started, obviously, we didn't know that. So as I mentioned before, uh, Senator, I worked for Senator Birch Bayh. He was a Democrat from Indiana. And uh, I was on the Judiciary Committee. So one day, my general counsel got a call from Senator Bayh's personal office, and Purdue University wanted to come by. Uh, Bai was a graduate of Purdue. Purdue was a very important constituent. So obviously, he said, hey, please meet with these folks and, and see what we can do to help them. So Purdue came in, and they actually had uh, Norman Latker, who was the patent counsel at the National Institutes of Health, and Howard Bremer from the University of Wisconsin. And they, start, they started telling us that under, government, under current government policies, if you made an invention with government funding, the government took it away from you. And that meant that it was never going to benefit anybody. And Purdue said, listen, uh, we've got some inventions we think could really be very important to help the public. But if we don't get the rights to them, they're just going to going to sit on the shelf. So um, after after the meeting was over, my general counsel asked me to look into it. And I found out that uh, actually it was a much worse situation <laughs> than what we had first learned about. Um, at that time, the government was funding about 50 percent of all the R&D in the country. Now it's probably about 30 percent. But it was probably about 70, 80 percent of our basic research. And uh, the U.S. was being pressed by Japan and Germany. We were losing markets. We'd lost the automotive market. We lost the steel market. We were losing electronics. And uh, we had a thing called the misery index, which was double digit inflation, double digit unemployment. So it really looked like America's best days were over. And uh, as we as we thought about this, we said, well, it doesn't make any sense for the American public to be paying billions of dollars of research if we're not commercializing what's coming out the other end. So uh, we went back to Senator Bayh, said we've looked into this issue. It looks like it's not just a Purdue issue, it's a national issue. And we recommend that uh, you get involved and let's see if we can do something about it. So uh, that's sort of how we how we began our journey. So I know the Bayh-Dole Act also has Dole attached to it as well. Can you tell us a little bit about how Robert Senator Robert Dole got involved? 
Sure. And, and actually, th- this is one of the this is one of the key reasons why we got the bill across the finish line, because to put things in, in current perspective, this would be like if, if today you had Ted Cruz and uh, Elizabeth Warren working together. I mean, it, it, it just was an odd couple combination. Birch Bayh was a liberal Democrat. Bob Dole is a conservative Republican. But it turned out as we looked into the issue that Senator Dole had a, a, a research assistant from the University of Arizona that had also been talking to Senator Dole about the same problem. And so we found out that, that Dole was interested. So we contacted his office and said, hey, listen, we'd like to work together with you to, to develop a bill. They said, great. And uh, we sat down and started drafting something up and it became the Bayh-Dole Act. And uh, the, the thing that, that, again, made it so important was it was an issue that I think both sides said, it doesn't make any sense to have the public paying billions of dollars in research if nothing's coming out the other end to actually benefit them. So it wasn't a really a, a Democratic or Republican issue or conservative or liberal issue. It was like a, a practical issue. And as I mentioned before, uh, the country was really in crisis. And, and we just we, it's, we found out later that, that the Japanese were having better access to some of our federal research than we were because they were sending study teams through to see you know, where this research was going. And U.S. companies basically stayed away from federal laboratories and universities because, again, if something was invented, the government would take it away. So what Baidol did in a nutshell was we decentralized technology management from Washington. We said, if you make an invention, if you're a university or small company with government funding, you can own the invention. The government can use it for free. We basically restored the, the incentives of the patent system to, to the, the federal R&D. We provided incentives for success. We said, if you make royalties, you can keep them for more research. You have to reward your inventors. We had a couple rules. You have to give a preference for manufacturing in the United States for a licensee. You have to give a preference for small companies. But the bottom line was we basically got the bureaucracy out of the way. We said, okay, you can use the research, but let the people making the invention actually own it and manage it. And it was like a, like a Jeffersonian approach. Uh, at that time, a lot of people thought Japan Inc. was the way to go with big government and big industry working together. Baidu was just the opposite. We said, uh, let's trust the entrepreneurs, let's provide incentives and get out of the way and see what they can do. Yeah, it's an absolutely incredible story. And and uh, it's just amazing. I think one of the interesting things that um, I learned in, in researching that story was the fact that the Carter administration at the time really didn't take a whole lot of interest in the draft bill until the very end when they kind of decided to interject themselves. And it sounded like it made for a very harried time. I'm curious, uh, kind of, you know, what your thoughts were uh, at that time when all of a sudden here you kind of get this uh, this interest from the, the president uh, at kind of at the end stage of the game, so to speak. Well, um, that was uh, you put it very diplomatically. Um, as I mentioned <laughs> before, we introduced the bill. Every Congress works two years, so you have to reintroduce a bill for a new Congress. So at the end of the 95th Congress, we introduced my dole and sent it around for comments. And we sent it to the administration saying, listen, we want to introduce this next year, which is in 1979. We want to get your comments in there. We got nothing back. So, you know, the bill's been introduced. I think we're probably in the... And, and I, don't, I don't remember what the date was, but a couple, for a couple months later, we had some co-sponsors and we decided we're going to have a hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee under Senator Vice subcommittee. So the day before the hearing, we've got all the witnesses lined up, you know, everything's ready, good to go. The day before the hearing, I get one of President Carter's uh, legislative uh, aides coming in 
saying, hey, we want you to hold off the hearing until we're ready to make comments. And I said, listen, I've been waiting for six months for your comments. You can't come in here the day before the hearing. I'm sorry, we're going forward. And, you know, whenever you're ready, we'll be happy to talk to you. But we're not going to slow this thing down. So, you know, we did have we did have a, a, a witnesses from the administration. We had Hyman Rickover, who was actually opposed to what we were doing. Uh, he sort of came in on his own. It was interesting because Jimmy Carter actually came out of the nuclear Navy and Hyman Rickover was a terror. He actually ran the, the, the Navy's nuclear submarines. He was he was renowned for being a, you know, a tough guy to work with. So even Jimmy Carter was not going to mess around with Hyman Rickover. So Hyman Rickover came steaming in. Uh, he was opposed to buy dole. He thought that anything the government funded should be available for free in the public domain, which is actually what had happened for 40 years. The problem was nothing was being commercialized. So we had Hyman Rick over there. Uh, we had the, the Comptroller General, Elmer Stats, who had actually had, had taken a real interest in, in government patent policy. And we asked him to do a study on, on how the previous pre-Bidol policies were working. And he came in and told us there were 28,000 inventions sitting on the shelf, benefiting nobody. Less than 5% were ever being licensed. And to add insult to injury, the way the pre-Bidol era worked was if you made an invention with government funding, you could petition the agency that funded it to, to get rights back. Now, again, if the agency kept it, it was, there was, it was virtually assured it was not going anywhere. But you had to petition for your rights back to the invention you'd made. It was taking them 12 to 18 months to make a decision. And the answer was frequently no. And we found out that this was particularly harmful to universities and small companies because a lot of a lot of small companies said, listen, we just can't work with government research. We can't afford to lose inventions we make. And the universities were saying our, our, our inventions are so early stage. If we can't work with industry and license them, they're, they're just not going to go anywhere. So I think the hearing uh, really confirmed to us that we were on the right track. Um, Senator Bayh was very deferential to Admiral Rickover. We had a lot of respect for Admiral Rickover, but Admiral Rickover's world came out of nuclear, out of nuclear, uh, regu- you know, nuclear reactors, <laughs> and and in in the nuclear industry, patents are not that important. You don't really have a lot of commercial competition in the nuclear industry. So from Admiral Rickover's standpoint, patents weren't really very important. But when you got to medicine. Uh, they were critically important. So again, we we had them had him come in. He testified. Uh, we, uh, it's also interesting today when you look at the alliances between our universities and, and, and industry. We didn't have a single company testify at our hearing they had any interest in working with universities because it was such a foreign idea. Much less federal laboratories. That was not even on the table. So um, it, you know, it, it's it's hard to look back now at how things were before by Dole, but you basically had. The industry people did their research. The government did their research. And unless the government was going to pay you for, for a contract, uh, basically people stayed as far away from government-funded research as possible because, again, the, the policies were if an invention was made, the government could take it away from you and make it freely available to the Japanese, your rivals, whomever. And it just completely destroyed any incentives for actually you know, trying to take that to market. Yeah, and this was a real nail biter of a story too, because I think President Carter signed Bidol on his very last uh, day, and then um, you had a you know Senator Bai was gone; um, he didn't win re-election either. And then you have a new administration coming in, and I think it wasn't until 1983 that 
President Reagan actually issued an executive order that gave his support to buy Dole. So even though it was signed into law, it was still had a very kind of uh, rocky road to, to kind of get started. So it's really, truly an amazing story. You know, again, there was there was a lot there was there was a lot that had to happen before our hearing, and even when we got the bill passed, because that was uh, it was touch and go all the way. Um, I, I, Admiral Rickover was very close to Senator Russell Long. Russell Long was Huey Long's son. If you ever saw All the King's Men, that was about Huey Long, who basically ran Louisiana as his personal fiefdom. And and I really liked Senator Long. He was a pre-television guy. He was the kind of he actually recommended against televising the Senate and the House procedures. He said it's going to ruin the place. And I think he was right, because you have all these people now that are basically playing to the media as, as opposed to actually legislating. But um, uh, Russell Long was very close to Admiral Rickover. He also felt sincerely that if the government funded research, it should be put in the public domain. So we really had a, a balancing act there between. The people that thought that any bill should be big business focused because that those, those are the companies that drove the, the economy. And that was sort of the, the way that the Carter administration came down. We had Ralph Nader and Hyman Rickover and Senator Long saying anything the government funds should be in the public domain without any patent rights. So we were really trying to walk a very uh, narrow path there to get through. And uh, we had a lot of twists and turns before we ever got to the point of having to worry about getting the president to sign it. Yeah. Absolutely. But I wanted to switch gears, Joe, and ask you a little bit um, about what you did after you left the Senate staff in 1982. So you went on and worked as the executive director of IPO, and I you accomplished several things there. So I wanted to ask you, can you talk a little bit about what IPO achieved under your leadership while you were there? Well, I was, at, I was on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and, and as you mentioned, uh, Senator By lost in 1980. So as we were, we finally got Bayh-Dole passed, uh, <laughs> frankly, a series of miracles. Um, I, I just wanted to tell one more story, if you don't mind, and oh, then we, we can absolutely. pick up on IPO. We, we, we were really having a hard time getting Bayh-Dole scheduled because uh, under the Senate rules, one senator can really make it very difficult. They don't have to filibuster. They can just offer a series of amendments. And for a patent bill, the, the Senate majority leader, who at that time was Senator Byrd, was not going to put a lot of time into debating a patent bill. And also we're heading into an election, so time is precious. So we had to negotiate with Senator Long to see if we can reach some kind of agreement that if, if he could just swallow hard and let Bayh-Dole go through, we would not expand it to big companies. And as soon as we got to the floor, um, our colleagues in the Senate Commerce Committee decided they were going to offer an amendment to expand Bayh-Dole to big business, which Senator Long blew a gasket. So we, Senator Bayh and Dole, worked their sides very diligently. Um, we, we actually picked up Senator uh, Kennedy and Senator Thurman as co-sponsors on the same day, and they were polar opposites in the, in, the, in the Senate. I mean, Senator Kennedy was probably the most liberal member. Senator Thurman was the most conservative member. And I'll never forget, I went down to the Senate floor to tell Senator Bayh the good news, and he was sitting in, his, in his, his desk, and he had his reading glasses on and kind of pushed them back <laughs> and looked up with me with a smile and said, are you sure this bill makes sense? And we both laughed because it was just unheard of to have Kennedy and Thurman come on the same bill, but we got them there. We were able to defeat the amendment from Senator uh, Stevenson and Cannon that would have expanded by Dole to big business. But Russell Long came out and brought the whole thing to a halt. Uh, he said, this is appalling. This is the worst thing I've ever seen. And uh, so we had to pull the bill off the floor. And it took me about three months to negotiate with, with Wiley Jones, who was Senator Long's staffer, to get the thing back on the, on the floor again. 
Uh, and again, all this time is running out because we have an election coming out. And as I mentioned, when a Congress uh, ends at the end of two years, if the bill hasn't passed, it has to start over again. So finally, Senator Long agreed to let us have the have the bill come up again. It passed 91 to four. Senator Long voted no. But the House was going with the Carter administration. So Senator Long made it clear to us that if 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 if, if, the, if the House bill came over with big business in it, he was going to kill it. And he wasn't kidding. And he had the, the authority to do it. So anyway, we went into the election. Uh, my boss, Senator By, lost. In fact, I was sitting uh, watching the election returns come in with my then five-year-old son. And uh, the first return on CBS News was uh, Indiana's gone to Reagan. And we projected by Birch by has lost his election, which means I'm out of work. And my son looked at me and said, Dad, does that mean I don't get an allowance anymore? <laughs> and I had to say, yeah, that, that, that could be a possibility. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Senator Congressman Kastenmeyer of Wisconsin was very close to the University of Wisconsin. He was handling the House bill and and. We basically had a standoff. I mean, I, I was not going to budge. They were not going to budge. And the time is ticking away. So finally, I got a call from, from Congressman Kastenmeyer's staffer who offered me a deal. He said, we'll take by Dole if you'll take some other parts of a, of a patent bill we have pending. So I said, that makes sense to me. Let me run it by Senator By. Senator By said, fine. So the House passed their bill. And the agreement was they would put by Dole on the House bill. And then when it came to the Senate, we would just bring it up and pass it. So that came over in that form. Bidel was in the House bill. I went down to talk to the Senate Majority Leader, and their staffer said, OK, we've got to clear this because we know Senator Wong has some concerns. And when they clear it, it means if any senator says, I don't want this brought up, it doesn't get brought up. In other words, it's dead. So they, they went through the clearance procedure, and then they called me back and said, listen, there's a hold on your bill. And they don't tell you who the hold was. You have to figure that out. Now, we're after the election. The Congress is trying to do a budget. As soon as they do the budget, the Congress is over. So time is of the essence. So I called Wiley Jones. I said, Wiley, did you guys put a hold on the bill? And Wiley and I had an agreement that we were not going to sandbag each other. We said, if, you know, if something's going to happen, I'll let you know straight up and we're not going to surprise each other. And he said, no, we didn't put a hold on the bill. So I figured it had to be Senator Stevenson of the, of the Commerce Committee. So I went down to the Senate cafeteria. I, I found his staffer there. <laughs> I basically said, hey, listen, I don't know if you put a hold on our bill or not, but I'm telling you, if that hold's not removed, I'm putting a hold on everything that's got your boss's name on it. So in a couple of minutes, we get a call back from the Senate Majority Leader. The hold's been lifted, but they said, listen, we've still got to run this by Senator Wong's office one more time. So Wiley Jones called me, and this is sort of how the Congress used to work. And I'm out of work. So Wiley says, listen, I've got two questions, one from Senator Long and one from me. And I said, fine. He said, Senator Long wants to know, does Senator By really want this bill? I said, yes, he does. And then Wiley says, okay, I got a question for you. If we hold this bill up, maybe you can get a job next year and come back again. And I said, Wiley, I really appreciate that, but it's either now or never. So we got the bill cleared and I get a call from the Senate Majority Leader's office that it's going to be brought up in 10 minutes. And if you're not there to bring it up, it's we're going on. We're not going to wait for you. So I go running over to the Senate floor. I call back to Senator By. He's off, he's out of the office having a press conference. So I'm panicked. Um, you know, it, you know, if we don't bring this thing up right now, it's going to die. 
And I see Senator Dole coming out of the Senate cloakroom. I run up to him, explain the situation. I hand him Senator Bayh's floor statement. We cross out Bayh. We write in Dole. Senator Dole says, follow me. He brings up Bayh Dole. And that's how we got it passed. So it couldn't have been it couldn't have been harder to get through. And then we had to get President Carter to sign it, which he just did on the very last day uh, because he was being urged by some of his bureaucracy to veto it. But um, getting that across the finish line was a miracle. Um, so anyway, after we did that, uh, I, got a, I got on with Senator Mathias, who was actually a Republican on the Senate Judiciary Committee who liked patent issues. And uh, one day I was sitting in my office and Don Banner, who, who was uh, Jimmy Carter's patent commissioner, came by and said, hey, listen, we've got this trade association and we were wondering if you might be interested in running it. And I thought that sound, sounded interesting. So it was intellectual property owners. I went down there and uh, I didn't realize this, but they really hadn't been active for about five or six months. So we revived it. Uh, we identified their number one priority, which was actually strengthening the U.S. patent system. And uh, we had sort of a similar adventure to passing by Dole to get the Court of Appeals to the Federal Circuit passed, which actually reestablished confidence in the U.S. patent system. So I think it was by Dole, which decentralized technology management, combined with the passage of the court, which restored confidence in, in that the U.S. patent was worth something, it really helped revive the U.S. economy. Yeah, that's incredible for, I mean, just to be involved with one by Dole Act, for example, and then to be involved in the enactment of the federal circuit, to be involved with both of those is just an incredible story. So you weren't done after IPO, Joe. You went on to the U.S. Department of Commerce and helped establish an office that oversaw the implementation of the Bayh-Dole Act. And that office was the Office of Technology Commercialization. And you became the director of that office. Can you talk a little bit about how in this position you promoted the Bayh-Dole Act and how you fought off various attempts to try and weaken it? Sure. Actually, uh, it, it sounds more like I, I can't keep a job, which which, <laughs> which actually uh, might be true. But uh, I'd mentioned that Norman Latker was with us when we first met on Bayh-Dole. He was the patent counsel at NIH. And he was one of the people that actually, he, he inspired Bayh-Dole. He did a lot of the drafting on it. He's, he's actually one of my heroes. For his efforts, he was fired by NIH because they, they didn't like what he was doing. So Senator Bayh and Dole actually were, helped him get another job. And uh, Norm wound up at the Commerce Department under the Reagan administration. And uh, as you mentioned before, um, Bayh-Dole was under attack because you have to get, it's not enough to get the law passed, you have to get the regulations in place that enforce the law. And a lot of the bureaucrats who didn't like Bayh-Dole, because remember, Bayh-Dole is taking authority from Washington and giving it out out to the uh, universities and small companies. So it was it really was a, a loss for some of these bureaucrats. They were attacking the Bayh-Dole regulation and Norm was there, so Norm at Commerce was able to oversee the regulations. Uh, he was able to work with uh, Bruce Merrifield, who was the assistant secretary, who was a great entrepreneur that Reagan brought in. And they worked with the White House and actually got President Reagan to endorse Bayh-Dole. In fact, he put out an executive order making Bayh-Dole the policy of, of, the, uh, of the administration. So Norm, Norm contacted me. And said, listen, we've got a lot of stuff we'd like to do here. And what would you think about coming down to work on our office? And I thought, well, that, that sounds interesting because I, I really love Bayh-Dole. I, I loved what I was doing with IPO, but my, you know, my heart was really sort of in the government patent policy. So I went down, worked with Norm. And then when Norm moved on, I became the director of the office. And uh, one thing that we did before Norm left was 
We Baidol allows federal laboratories also to license their inventions. And after we passed Baidol in 1982, the Office of Federal uh, Office of Personnel Policy in the administration ruled that agencies didn't have the authority to retain royalties. So what that meant was that the cost of licensing and negotiating and advertising was borne by the agencies. But if any money came back, it went to the Treasury Department. And also, they didn't have authority to, to reward their, their, to share royalties with their inventors. So, you know, if you want to have a system where nothing's going to happen, you know, you bear the cost and all the benefits go to somebody else. So, Norm and I worked on what was called the Federal Technology Transfer Act, which is like Baidol for federal laboratories. It gave them the authorities. It said they could keep royalties back and it said they had to share royalties with their inventors. So, that really uh, that really energized the U.S. economy, and, and President Reagan was very supportive of it, had another executive order endorsing that. Um, so when Norm left, um, one day we were sitting around, and uh, I think it was a Friday, and we got this thing from the State Department, uh, which we'd never seen before. It was a pending international agreement, and it basically said if there's a visiting scientist in a federal laboratory university from abroad, um, which we have all the time, that under this agreement, they would be allowed to have rights to inventions they help make in federal laboratories. And we said, that's, that's insane. You know, why would we, we're happy to have them come over here. They, they get royalties like our inventors if they're part, if they make an invention under Baidol or the Federal Tech Transfer Act. But why in the world would we be giving them rights in, in their home markets to inventions they make at U.S. taxpayer expense? So, it turned out that Secretary Baldridge, who was the Secretary of Commerce, had just gotten back from Japan. Uh, they'd been out drinking sake or something, and the Japanese basically told him, America's days are over. You ought to just get used to being an agricultural company, a country again. That's, that's really what you do best. So Baldridge was chewing nails. So when we went up to him on this Friday, and, and the, the State Department letter said, unless we hear from you today, this is Friday, the, 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 the uh, deal's going forward. They're getting ready to go to, go to Tokyo and negotiate. So Baldridge, uh, his, his general counsel, calls over the State Department and says, we object. And that started a bonfire because the state had never heard anybody object to one of their agreements before. We'd never even seen these agreements before. They just sort of went through on their own little, own little channel. So to make a long story short, short um, we went to the Economic Policy Council under the president. Uh, the Economic Policy Council endorsed our view that you can't just give these rights away to visiting scientists. Again, we're not opposed to visiting scientists, but we're happy to have you in our laboratories and, you're, and we're happy to have you work on appropriate uh, appropriate projects, but that doesn't mean you get rights to things that are, that are made at, at, at public expense. So anyway, um, that started a whole other thing where we, we suddenly got into negotiating international agreements and bringing them in line with BIDOL and the Federal Technology Transfer Act. Um, because under, under the law, Baidol and the Federal Tech Transfer Act are actually overridden by international agreements. So it was like every, you know, every once in a while, this would be hit by some other issue we never heard about before. But anyway, um, I think our time at Commerce was, was pretty well stated. And also, Commerce is the overseer of Baidol. So we, if we ever had an agency trying to undermine Baidol through a regulation, we stopped it. And we actually did that a couple of times. So um we were a small office, but luckily we had political support at the secretary's level, and uh, I think we made our made our presence felt. 
And I think um, after the Department of Commerce, you helped restructure the National Technology Transfer Center, which was created by Congress to support tech transfer between federal labs and industry. Can you tell us about the National Technology Transfer Center, which is also referred to as NTTC, and what it does and some of the achievements the center made under your leadership? Well, that's another story of just sitting around and suddenly something comes up. I was actually at the Commerce Department. And the security folks said, there's a, there's a priest down here that wants to come up and talk to you. And that didn't happen all the time at the Commerce Department. But I said, sure, bring him up. And it was a, it was a president of Wheeling Jesuit University or Wheeling Jesuit College at that time who had gotten some funding from Senator Byrd to set up the National Technology Transfer Center. And uh, they didn't really know what to do. So he basically asked me, what would I think about coming out to Wheeling, West Virginia? And I was like, why would I go to Wheeling, West Virginia? And then he mentioned, uh, by the way, we have free college tuition for all, all, the, all the kids of our, 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 our faculty. <laughs> so I went back to my wife and we had three kids at Herndon High School outside of, outside of uh, D.C. And I said, you know, this might be worth checking into. So it was set up by Congress. So we actually went, went to the National Tech Transfer Center. Um, I was actually uh, one of the vice presidents when I first got there. And the NTDC was set up to basically help Companies find research in federal laboratories or universities because we had these statutes vital in the Federal Tech Transfer Act, but a lot of companies had no idea how do you know what they're doing? How do we get in touch with them? And the other thing we started doing was we started uh, doing training courses. We actually talked to the agencies and we had these laws passed, but a lot of there wasn't a lot of people trained in the in the particularly in the federal government. How do you negotiate a license? You know, how do these laws work? It was just a law passed one day and suddenly you're supposed to do this, but there was really no training. So what we really focused on at the National Tech Transfer Center was we had the biggest database uh, anywhere of what the government was funding. Um, We also had a lot of people trying to hack into it from abroad. We actually won awards for having, having a good security system. And also we set up a training course. But for our training course, we said, listen, if you haven't actually done this in real life, you can't teach it for us. So we had experienced people, a lot of people from universities, from industry that actually did hands-on training. Uh, you know, how do you license? How do you negotiate? How do you set structure agreements? How do you enforce agreements? All those little things that you know, basically a lot of folks in the federal government had never done before. And at the same time, we helped uh, agencies market their technologies, to help them try to find companies that were uh, you know good fits for them. So. Um, even though we were in Wheeling, West Virginia, I think it actually worked out very well. Um, you know, luckily we had the internet come on. We actually, the NTDC had one of the first internet sites of any of anybody, which is frankly pretty amazing. So um, we did that until uh, 2007 when the funding ran out, and that's when I set up my own consulting business. So um, again, as we said before, it's obvious in this interview I can't hold a job for very long, and I'm just sort of <laughs> sitting around every once in a while and. Something comes up and I go flying off to some new place. Uh, it sounds like a very exciting career. And, and besides your consulting company, you're also on the Bidol, um Commission as well. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about um, that coalition. Sure, I'm happy to. Uh, it's hard to believe that uh, last year was the 40th anniversary of Bidol, And uh, I'm actually on my own consulting business. So one day I was uh, talking with one of my friends at Bio, Hans Sauer. I mean, Hans is, is, is great. And uh, he said, listen, you know, the, the 40th anniversary is coming up and, and nobody's really doing anything about it. What did you think? What would you think about if we started contacting some people 
and, and you know, we really ought to celebrate this and, and remind people what Bonnie did. So we contacted a number of folks. We had a lot of people from, from universities, from industry, from venture capital people, economic development people. And so we put together what we call the Bidol 40 Coalition to celebrate the 40th anniversary. And as we started doing it, we found out that a lot of the issues that we were, you know, Bidol is still hotly contested in some quarters. A lot of people are trying to weaken the law. A lot of people are trying to misrepresent the law. So we, what we decided to do was actually start put up a website with information. How does Bidol really work? We had webinars on, uh, you know, how the law works and then, frankly, how some of the attacks are off base. And then last October, we had a celebration of, of the 40th anniversary of Bidol. And, uh, and, and Senator Dole, who's now 97 years old, actually gave us a really great video, which you, you, people can see on our website. So it was, it was really a nice celebration. And uh, as it was winding down, our, our advisory board said, listen, you know, these issues are still very current. Let's keep this coalition going for at least another year. So we now it's called the Bidol Coalition. We don't want to call it Bidol 41. You know, we don't want to put a number in there every time. But we're, these issues are still current. Uh, we're, st- we're still having attacks on Bidol. And so we thought, you know, it would really be good to at least have a place where there's institutional memory. How does Bidol work? What's, what, what, what's the back? Why was it passed? You know, what are success stories? And uh, like every three or four months, we'll do a webinar on some issue to at least educate people on, hey, this is what the law says. This is what the implications are. Um, so, you know, that's really been a lot of fun. Well, and I think it's great that you have that coalition and that you're keeping it going at least for another year. And I think it's very timely because I know, Joe, you're very aware that on July 9th, President Biden issued a really long 31-page executive order entitled Promoting Competition in American Economy. And this executive order covers everything from agriculture to shipping to railroads to the internet. And the aim of the order is to promote a fair, open, and competitive marketplace against threats of excessive market concentration. And some or among some of the intended beneficiaries are supposed to be entrepreneurs who are going to receive what's uh, stated in the order as space to experiment, innovate and pursue new ideas that have for centuries powered the American economy and and improved the quality of life. But interestingly, on page 28, there's a directive to the Secretary of Commerce that many believe could threaten to undermine the Bayh-Dole Act. Can you talk a little bit about this directive to the Secretary of Commerce and how you believe it would undermine the act itself? Sure. Um, basically, let's back up to Bayh-Dole. When Bayh-Dole passed, uh, the objective of Bayh-Dole was to make sure whenever possible, you're commercializing federally funded inventions. So that, that's the goal of Bayh-Dole. And again, remember, in, in when we passed Bayh-Dole in 1980, there was only like maybe 12 universities that had a tech transfer office because basically all the rights were being taken away from them before Bayh-Dole. So there was a lot of concern in Congress, you know, do these, do these universities actually have the skills to manage inventions? And we also want to make sure that we don't have people licensing an invention from university to sit on it. For example, you know, if you, if you have an invention coming out of the university, that really could uh, obsolete, make obsolete some existing products. You don't want a company licensing it uh, with the express purpose of making sure it never gets commercialized. So Bayh-Dole has a provision, which was non-controversial at the time, called margin rights. And what margin rights basically say is, if the university is not making good faith efforts to license the invention, 
or if the person they have licensed is not making good faith efforts to commercialize it, the government can march in and force the university to license new people under reasonable terms. Okay, so the reason for that is we want to make sure again that universities are in fact trying to license. And if the government does march in, we don't want you putting poison pill requirements in this license because your nose is out of joint. So whoever gets another license can't do anything with it. Now, the, the march in rights also say if you have licensed somebody and they're commercializing the invention, but a national emergency comes up like COVID and they can't produce enough product to meet the national need, then the government can also march in. So that's how march in rights work. And that's how it's understood for 20 years. I mentioned before that the Ralph Nader people don't like buy dole. They think that anything the government funds should be out in the, available to anybody without any protection, which, of course, doesn't work economically, but that's their right. So 20 years after buy dole passed, this law review article comes out claiming that marchant rights have this secret provision allowing the government to set prices for, for technologies that are commercialized from government-funded research. In other words, the government can say, hey, we don't think your price is reasonable, and then for, you know, then license somebody, one of your license a competitor to undercut you in the market. As soon as that came out, uh, I, I, we didn't really pay much attention to it until the Washington Post had that in, a, in an op-ed. And I got a hold of Senator Bai, and again, I was at the National Tech Transfer Senator. Senator Bai was at a law firm. And I said, Senator, this is really serious. I mean, this, this really is 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 setting Baidol on its head. I mean, Baidol is trying to decentralize authority out of Washington. And now this whole thing puts Washington squarely on top of every deal to the fact that they can actually micromanage a price. <clears throat> so Senator Bai agreed with me. He got a hold of Senator Dole, who was also in a law firm, and they, they responded saying that's not how Baidol works. Now, the Washington Post gave the opponents a op-ed, which is fairly lengthy. They would only give us a letter to the editor which is very brief. So we didn't have much, we didn't have a lot of space there, but we came back immediately and said, that's not how Baidol works. So regardless, the opponents of Baidol have been, been filing petitions to agencies for 20 years, saying that claiming that Baidol allows them to control prices. They've all been rejected under Democratic and Republican administrations. It's not sanctioned under the law. But what happened was a lot of companies were very concerned because it took a long time to get confidence. I mentioned before that, that we didn't have any industry testify at the Bidol hearing. They had any interest in working with universities. You know, for them to believe that universities and federal labs were reliable partners really took a long time. And so they started hearing these rumblings about people trying to misuse Bidol. So if somebody doesn't like the price you're charging, the government can license your competitors. And a lot of companies were getting very nervous about that. So the Commerce Department put out a paper. Um, about four years ago, asking for comments on things that they could do to strengthen the commercialization of government-funded research. And companies came back and said, listen, we want you to clarify that you're not going to misuse Baidol. So Commerce had proposed a regulation that came out in the waning days of the Trump administration, basically saying that margin rights cannot be used to manage to regulate business practices. In other words, the law allows you to say if somebody's not trying to commercialize something, or if you can't produce enough product, but it doesn't let the government set prices for things that have been successfully commercialized. That regulation was pending, and the Nader people launched a massive uh, effort to get all these uh, form letters in. I think they had like 80,000 <laughs> come in, you know, denouncing the regulation. And so what happened was, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, 
buried in the in the Biden executive order was this terse language directing the Secretary of Commerce not to finalize the regulation. So it's hard to know what that means, but it certainly seems like uh, it, it's certainly not an endorsement that that you know the government's going to continue to basically uh, say the government can't set prices. Now you know we'll see what they do finally, but I think that's that's raised a lot of concerns um, in in industry because. What people don't understand is when companies are commercializing government-funded invention, these are ideas more than products. And typically, it's going to take the company, a rule of thumb is um, five to seven years for a a non-drug invention. It's going to take you probably seven to 15 years if you're talking about a a pharmaceutical or or a therapy. And companies pay hundreds of times more in in research and development than the government spent in the initial research. And also, people don't understand that most of these pro- most of these projects fail, and when they fail, the company takes a hit. There, there are real life consequences when a company's uh, project goes down. You could you could lose your job, you, know, you could lose your company. Um, under Bayh-Dole, we're forming two startup companies every day of the year around university inventions. Those are driven by venture capitalists, and you know again when they take a bet on a, on a startup company, the risks are really high that it's not going to work, and when those go down. The company takes a hit, or you may have a somebody who's mortgaged their house to set up their company. So any more uncertainty in the system really threatens Bayh-Dole. And I think a lot of us have concern, you know, where's the administration going? Because um, just to have that language buried on page 28 saying, hey, stop the regulation that would have assured people Bayh-Dole is going to continue to be implemented as written, um, certainly sends a message that uh, <laughs> there's, it certainly added to the uncertainty. So I don't want to go beyond that, but I think it's one of those things that all of us who've been fighting for Bayh-Dole for 41 years are now very concerned because once you lose the confidence, the government's a reliable partner, you're not going to get it back again. And ironically, the Chinese would love to have our companies, particularly our life science companies, do research in China. China is, is targeting uh, the pharmaceutical industry is one of the things they want to, want to eclipse us in. So they'd love to have companies start doing research there. They've even passed a Bayh-Dole Act for Chinese universities to make them more attractive. So. Uh, you know, I, I, what, the last thing we want to do is, is undermine Bayh-Dole and suddenly having our research going abroad. So I'll stop there. But um, it's one of those things that, that is very concerning. I agree with you 100 percent, Joe. And I guess it's just going to be a waiting game to see what the Biden administration decides to do next on this particular issue. So, Joe, you recognized very early on that there was underrepresentation of minorities in the technology management community. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the programs you've been involved with to try and improve this representation and what you think needs to be done to improve representation going forward? Sure. Um, I've mentioned to you that I was working at the National Technology Transfer Center, which is in Wheeling, West Virginia. And uh, one day, unannounced, these these folks pulled up and they were from historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs. And they'd heard about the NTDC and they were driving by and said, look, let's stop and, and talk to these folks. And they said, hey, listen, we're really concerned because we see this as another profession that's being started. And if we don't get our kids in at the at the at the front end of it, uh, we don't we don't want to be we don't want to miss an opportunity here. And uh, I, I Frankly, I hadn't really thought about it that much, although uh, there was a lot of women in, uh, in in tech transfer. A lot of the university programs have been run by women for many years, but there frankly weren't many people of color. And so 
we, we were talking to him and I said, you know, that that really makes a lot of sense because um, tech transfer in those days was just starting to be a profession. But a lot of it was word of mouth. You know, you, a friend of yours may say, hey, there's an opening here, Lisa. You ought to apply for this thing. And if you weren't in the system I and mean, people weren't discriminating, open, you know, they were, they weren't, nobody was trying to be malicious. But the fact was, if you weren't in the system, uh, you didn't really know. And uh, a lot of people that wanted that wanted to get into tech transfer had had no idea how do you break into it. So we thought that made a lot of sense. Um, we had some contacts at the Commerce Department under a thing called the Minority Business Development Agency. And a long story short, we went to them. You know, said we're the National Tech Transfer Center. We'd like to work with you in setting up a program. And uh, they agreed and said, you know, this is like a great opportunity for us to get on the ground floor. So we, we started a program called the Emerging ETAP, the Entrepreneurial Technology Apprentice Program. And the folks at MBDA, I, I thought this was really cool. They said, listen, we don't want this to be a minority program. We're going to start with HBCU students, but we want this to be a, stu- a program that could be rolled out to anybody, any, any college kid that wants to be an entrepreneur. And so what we did was we started recruiting students to come to Wheeling for a couple of weeks. We had a boot camp. Uh, we, uh, we basically, when they when they came to the dormitory, uh, we set them up into teams. They had, most of these kids had never met each other before. Some had never some had never even been anywhere before. Um, so we gave them we gave them technologies to work on. We gave them a week to come up with a marketing plan, a, a, a pitch. Uh, you know, these were things that you really could do within a week. They weren't uh, <laughs> weren't nuclear reactors or something. And we had uh, some of our, our some of our staff there, some of the business school staff working with them, and it was amazing how the light bulbs, I mean, these kids were so great. I, I just, I love them. In fact, uh, we had this one year at West Liberty University up, up the road from Wheeling. And the president of the university was so impressed with these kids, even though they were just there for the summer for a couple of weeks, he would give his personal time and go over their work with them. And so what we had at the end of two weeks, they had to, had to present their plan to a, we had uh, business people and, and uh, professional folks, you had to, had a, we're going to rate your plan. So they presented their plan there, and uh, it, it was really well done. And what we found was that um, as part of the program, we were telling these, these kids, okay, now if you want to get into tech transfer, these are the things you have to do. Because a lot of them had no idea if you want to go to graduate school, you know, what do you go to graduate school in? You know, should you get in the sciences, whatever. So we just had to – we caught them in their junior year, and, uh, and, and I think it was actually life-changing. Um, the program ended in 2007 when NTDC uh, lost its funding. But we found was that um, I think about 80% of them went on to graduate school, started a company, or even some of them got into the professional tech transfer. So, you know, it was a pilot program. I think it, it really did very well for itself. I mean, now this whole diversity equity thing is a much bigger issue. But um, what we found was you didn't have to be patronizing. Uh, these kids can compete with anybody. You just had to give them a chance and give them a little bit of guidance. And we did that and let them go. And after that, they had to compete. And, and they did. And I think you know, that to me was it was one of the it was one of the surprise programs because, um, you know, again, I was, I was a lot of my life seems to be just sitting around and somebody comes in the door. But if, if those uh, folks from the historically black college and university hadn't come by, I don't know if we would have done the program. But I think it was like the right thing at the right time. And uh the university people loved it. The federal lab people loved it. I think it was one of those things where, you know, once you presented the opportunity, people were happy to work with us. So, um, frankly, it was it was one of the most fun programs I ever worked with. Joe, I'd like to close the podcast by asking, you've been a tireless champion for the Bayh-Dole Act over 30 years. 
Looking back at your career and the impact that Baidol has had, what are you most proud of? Well, um, you know, I think the thing I'm most proud of is, is not my accomplishment. Baidol had the potential for people to commercialize technologies. Didn't mean they had to. We just opened the door up, just like I mentioned the, the program with the uh, minority students. And I think the thing that I'm most proud of is when Baidol passed, people had lost confidence in America. Uh, it was one of those periods where it looked like we were going downhill, looked like our system didn't work anymore. And the, the alternative to Baidol, there was actually an alternative theory to Baidol. Our theory was decentralized management to entrepreneurs get out of the way. You know, give some incentives, give some rules, but then let them go. The other, the other thing, which is coming back now, is industrial policy. And that's like a 1930s big business, big unions, big government, all, all together um, in big industry, plotting the future. And I think we're, we're sort of at that, at that crossroads again. So to me, the thing that makes America great is I believe in entrepreneurs. I believe that entrepreneurs are smarter than, than central planners. I think they always will be. They can make mistakes. But if an entrepreneur makes a mistake, the mistake is limited to them and you learn and go on. If the central government makes a mistake, it's catastrophic. So, you know, a lot of people look at the Chinese model right now and thinking, well, you know, there's something to be said for that. I mean, you know, these guys uh, may not have much political freedom, but boy, it looks like their economy's going. Uh, <laughs> they said the th same thing about Japan in the 1970s and 80s. And uh, the Japanese are, are, are using our model. So I think uh, the thing I'm most proud of is Lisa played some small role. And I, I was I, I work with a lot of people smarter than me, at least saying, listen, trust our system, trust entrepreneurs, trust freedom. The founding fathers knew what they were doing when they put the patent system in, into Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution before the Bill of Rights. They knew what they were doing. Trust them. Our system works. Um, entrepreneurism always seems kind of scary because it's not predictable. But um, I think in the long term, it's going to run rings around any other system. And uh, if we'll just trust them again, it's going to work. Um, so I, anyway, I, I hope hopefully I've had some small contribution to that. And uh, I'm just plugging away as best I can. Well, I think I can speak for all our listeners by saying thank you, Joe, for being such a champion for this act. It's made a huge difference. And I know you've joked about not having uh, being able to keep a job, but I think that's been your job for, for over 30 years. So again, thank you. Well, Joe, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Uh, you can email me at joe, J-O-E, at bydole, B-A-Y-H-D-O-L-E, coalition.org. And also on on the internet, if you if you just Google Bidol Coalition, you'll go right to our website, which has a lot of information, videos, etc., including our program last year with Senator Dole on the 40th anniversary. So, uh, anything we can do to help your listeners, we're happy to do, and I very much appreciate your time. Great. Well, thanks so much again, Joe. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups. 
Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.